back in the fur shed for episode 37 of the Trapping Today podcast. It's me, Jeremiah Wood, your host, and uh, thank you for tuning in. Appreciate having you here. You can always contact me at jrodwood at gmail.com. That's J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. I read and respond to all of your emails. I might not get to them right away, but I will get to them usually within a few days. And I've been getting uh, quite a bit of feedback about the podcast. I appreciate that very much. It's awesome to hear from you. Uh, One thing that I have been starting to do when someone sends an email and says they like the podcast, thanks for, for doing it, I will usually respond with a question asking them, you know, asking what you would like to see uh, in future podcast episodes. So that just gives me an idea of generally what people are looking for. If you haven't emailed me and you want to uh, see certain things, go ahead and send off an email and let me know. Uh, get your voice out there. And it's going to allow me to see what I can incorporate into episodes that people might like. Some things I just won't be able to do, not, not my expertise. Other things I'll need to either learn or uh, find someone who does have that expertise to, to do that and help out with that information. But if it's something that I can help out with and I can provide information on and you let me know, it's probably something I haven't thought about yet and it's possibly a, a good idea for a future topic. So be sure to do that. One of the comments I've had a few times is... Uh, people interested in having me having guests on the podcast. So that is something that I have in mind and I want to start doing. It's not going to be in the works just yet. So there are some uh, technical things I need to figure out and uh, equipment that I need to get figured out, software, and a few of those sort of things to, to learn and to work through. And I just don't have the time to do that right now. So I will get to that probably in, I'm guessing in late December or in January. You can expect to maybe start hearing some interviews. I doubt I'll have the chance to dig deep into that before then. But I have some ideas on some people to try to get on to the podcast and uh, lots of things that we can learn as trappers. But... In the meantime, you got me, so you're going to have to deal with it. (laughs) I hope you uh, enjoy putting up with me for uh, once a week in in these episodes, and I know some of you do because you keep coming back and listening, so I appreciate it. Now, in tonight's episode, I'm going to give a quick update on some of the fur prices from the NAFA auction in July, and then I have uh, the main topic I'm going to go into a book by Charles Dobbins called Evaluation of Lures, Baits, and Urines. And we're going to dig a little deeper into evaluating trapping lure, how lure works, and how to uh, to determine whether a certain lure will work well on your trap line. So I think some of you, uh, if you're it, this is a good topic for anyone from beginner trapper to someone that's uh, very advanced and skilled because there's things that all of us can take uh, from the information provided in this book. And I'm excited to, to get into that. Uh, and first, the NAFA. Um, I may have a bit of news to cover as well. But, uh, okay, the NAFA 
results, NAFA fur auction results. Uh, the reason I did not provide these earlier is because NAFA did not post them on their website. And I actually got a, a letter from them about uh, my one weasel that sold in the July auction that was held over. Uh, my big fur check is a balance of 18 cents. I had a uh, tiny weasel that was a section 3, grade 4. It was uh, damaged in not very good shape. I probably shouldn't have sent it, but I threw it in with the rest of them. And I got 20 cents for it. So minus the 11% uh, auction commission, I have a, a net balance of 18 cents. So I'm really excited for that for a check. Um, anyway, all my stuff's cleared out. I don't have any inventory at NAFA, so that's good. Uh, but not everybody can say that. There's a lot of stuff that's still in the pipe. So along with that, they did send a uh, result of the averages from the auction. 53% of muskrat sold for an average of $3.14. So I'm assuming that's the better muskrat that sold. Fisher, 42% sold, $32. Martin, 58%. $70. Those are probably just the best Alaskan and Canadian Martin. Uh, those are the heavy number ones. The semi-heavy Martin averaged $51 number ones. Beaver. Eastern Beaver. Half of them sold at $13. A third of the Western Beaver sold at $9. And all of the Section 3, which is typically Southern Beaver or Early Northern Beaver or Damaged, uh, that averaged $8. Otter, uh, nothing sold for otter. Coon, 20% of coon sold at average of $4.33. Uh, so not much going on there. Coyote, uh, all of the coyotes sold, the heavy coyote sold at an $82 average. So uh, that's that's hanging on. That's a, a little lower than it's been earlier in the season, but still pretty awesome prices for, for the good coyotes. The semis sold at 50% for an average of about $67. And then most of the Eastern coyotes sold, but the average dropped way down. It was about $24 this time. So those were, uh, I believe, over $40 uh, in the February uh, or May auctions. I can't remember which. And the Section 3 coyotes, some of those earlier on in the season were like in the $25 range. They averaged $8 at this sale. Uh, Lynx, nothing, uh, nothing sold for Lynx. Bobcat, 65% of the Western cats sold at $470. So the good ones are holding up in value, but the rest of the Bobcats did not sell. Mink, Red Fox, Gray Fox, Possum, none of those uh, sold. And uh, a few of the other items are just kind of like, you know, wolves, bears, and wolverines. There aren't, aren't many of those around um, of interest. Uh, Timberwolves sold at oh, $56. That, not a very good sale there. Uh, Wolverine, $240. And Beaver Caster, uh, all three grades sold at 100%. And they reported these by the ounce. So sometimes it's reported by the pound, sometimes by the ounce. But uh, the number one caster, the best stuff, sold for $450 an ounce which is going to be, I think that's like 60, 
it's around seventy dollars a pound, so it's still really high. Uh, grade two was three eighty-seven, and grade three was two sixty-two per ounce. That gives you an idea where we're at in the fur market. We're in a low fur market, so it's uh, no surprise to anybody that's been keeping up with things, and hopefully we have no direction to go but up. In trapping news, uh, one of the things I noticed was a lot of articles about uh, trapper education courses being offered. So I think this is kind of the time when people are starting to think trapping season's coming around and the youngsters or people who haven't trapped before want to get their courses because in most states you need trapper education to in order to purchase a license to trap. So some places are offering those. If you need to take one, you might want to check um, with your state uh, agency or Trappers Association uh, to see what you need to do in order to get into a course. And also some news in Massachusetts. There is a bill introduced in the legislature. A friend of mine sent this to me and it would ban water, all water trapping in Massachusetts. If you don't know the history of Mass with trapping, it's uh, you know, Massachusetts is a very liberal state with lots of urban people, not much uh, for a rural population, and there is not much connection to the land there, and a lot of anti-trapping sentiment, or just generally people who don't understand trapping and aren't exposed to it. So, their trapping was essentially banned in Massachusetts quite a while back. I think it was about 15-20 years ago. There was a ballot initiative that banned trapping, and this was uh, basically the ban went through that no trapping was allowed in Massachusetts. However, there there were several uh, allowances for animal damage, primarily because of beaver. So Massachusetts is a state that's becoming uh, continually becoming more and more urbanized, and people are developing in or near wetland areas and and so no beavers being harvested and more human development is resulting in lots of human animal conflicts with beavers so flooding dams road damage uh, things like that so there has been exemptions that have allowed the uh, department of fish and wildlife to permit people to trap for beaver in massachusetts to eliminate these animal damage control animal damage issues and this bill would uh, remove the ability of the Department of Fish and Wildlife to issue those permits for people to trap for animal damage so not only would you not be able to trap for fur you wouldn't be able to trap for animal damage that's a concern I don't know how far it'll go I know there's been efforts in the past to do this uh, so we'll just have to see how that plays out but hopefully uh, it's a shame what's happened to Massachusetts, and hopefully other states can uh, avoid those issues by helping to educate people about trapping. And I hope we can do our part here at Trapping Today in spreading the word. Uh, I also got another Bobcat article uh, from a listener, and uh, kind of the same old stuff about the uh, a lot of people in California not liking the idea that people trap for Bobcats and actually make money on them. So I've seen it um, many, many times before, and it goes back to, you know, thinking with our logical, rational minds versus thinking with our emotions. Uh, that's all I'll say about that issue. 
Now let's move on to the book by the legend Charles Dobbins. If you don't know Charles Dobbins, he is one of the most legendary trappers in uh, in the entire trapping world. Uh, Charles is kind of you know kind of uh, he's passed away now. Uh, his son Paul Dobbins runs the site Trapperman.com, so the very popular uh, message boards there and website. Uh, but Charles was was an absolute legend. He was a professional trapper for many many years. He's kind of uh, post uh, era of the early fur fishing game, like the the old school guys that that started the whole uh, trapping writing, uh, like the E.J. Dailies and the uh, Wildcat Lynch and Walter Arnold. Those guys were kind of the uh, early 1900s and then transitioning into the sort of the the more modern fur boom era of the say 50s to 80s that was kind of Charles Dobbins um, real uh, that that was the prime of his career Uh, he wrote I believe 11 books on trapping he was an excellent teacher he he was a professional trapper made his money trapping he just was was very very good at it very analytical did a bunch of fur trapping did animal damage control trapping did trapping uh, lessons and instruction went to conventions all over the place shared information helped get a bunch of young people into trapping and he's just overall a great guy Um, and and because of his reputation as a a very successful trapper, very knowledgeable guy. I put a lot of stock into this book when I was reading it. So the book again is called Evaluation of Lures, Baits, and Urines. And I, I've i been journeying a little bit into this amateur lure making uh, thing. And as part of that, I wanted to get a lot more background on, on how to test lures and how to evaluate lures. There's a lot of lure makers out there and they'll tell you, you know, this lure has been tested. Well, what does that mean? You know, you, you used it on your trap line for a season or two and it worked well. Um, how, how effectively did they test that lure? Now, if you listen to earlier episodes like this past winter, I went on a lot about trapping lure and whether it, how important actual trapping lure is, whether it's overhyped. And this this can all be put into sort of relative perspective where I say trapping lure in my opinion is less important than a lot of us think it is and I say that because a lot of people think that lure is kind of this magic thing that is going to make you a better trapper or or a worse trapper depending on the quality of lure you use and that's not true as a general rule that is not true and I think that the by far the most important aspects of trapping successfully are scouting hard work and proper identification of location and then execution of all that and when you do all those things you could put uh, trapping lure two different lures side side by side one that I cooked up in my shed back here with no experience and one that a professional trapper has been using and has developed over the course of decades you can put those side by side and 
the guy that does the work, that finds the location, that puts in the sets, is still going to catch more fur regardless of which lure he uses. Now that's on sort of a broad scale. When you get down to a professional scale where very, very small changes make a very big difference, that, that's a little bit of a different um, perspective on, on the importance of lures. And it's, it's hard a lot of times for us to, to sort of parse those two thing, ideas apart and, and understand them properly. Because as humans, we, we generally want to speak in broad terms and have come up with these conclusions that it's this way or it's that way. And that's really not a good way to look at things because there's almost no black and white answer when it comes to the ways that an, an animal operates out in the wild and how we use their habits and our habits to catch those animals. So I guess Charles Dobbins kind of strikes me as a guy that really gets into the nitty-gritty details of this thing. And he was a professional trapper who put hundreds, thousands of animals uh, up on stretchers. And small things made a big difference for him. The interesting, Another interesting point or idea is that Dobbins was not a lure maker himself. He was doing all of these this testing on these different lures and evaluating them without knowing what was in them. And, and that was uh, uh, a little bit refreshing to know that he was completely unbiased and, and it was kind of a good way of sort of a, a completely blind way of going at uh, determining these lures completely unbiased and he was evaluating them with, with essentially no knowledge. And sometimes he'd go and evaluate a lure and evaluate that same lure a couple years later and he'd go back to the lure maker and said what happened this lure is acting differently these animals are reacting to it differently and the lure maker might say oh yeah I added an ingredient to try to, to make the lure better um, which kind of I think annoyed Dobbins a little bit because because <laughs> uh, he had to retest and and completely revamp uh, the way that he used that lure on his trap line or the lure maker um, might say, well, I didn't change anything. And they could be completely honest about that, but the ingredients may have changed and, and they didn't know about how the raw materials they're getting changed. Uh, or he also mentions a case where you can bake a cake with the same ingredients two weeks apart and have different results. Sometimes you can do everything seemingly the same and, and come up with something different. So it's uh, it's really interesting how you can try to pick apart those those differences. Does it matter? I don't know. For most of us on the trap line, probably not. We probably don't need to go into this full detail of doing this testing ourselves. For those of you who are really getting into it, maybe you will benefit from this. Uh, but I think, again, all of us benefit from at least understanding the process and how it works and how you can go about testing these and what to think about when you're testing lures. So what is testing, what does lure testing entail? Um, it, basically, it's looking at how an animal reacts to a lure in many different situations. And Dobbins makes a really good point that 
different lures work differently for different people. That's kind of a general thing that we always kind of in the it's in the back of our minds. Like I can I can uh, get a Carmen lure, um, Carmen Russ Carmen Fox lure, and you can have that same bottle of lure in your trap line, and we can get different results. I mean, that's kind of an obvious thing. This it's going to happen, which. Uh, people still say, "Oh, this is the best lure," but that's that's that general broad statement really isn't necessarily a good thing to say. Now, Dobbins goes one level deeper into this, and he says, "Not only that, two trappers can use the same lure on the same trap line in the same area and get different results." Now, what is up with that? That just blew my mind reading that. I read that two, three times in a row just to make sure that I understand, understood what he was saying. And a lot, some of it, he said, I can't explain. Just don't understand it. Uh, I've all my decades of experience, and I just I don't understand what's going on there. Something is obviously going on. I don't know what it is. But he's had guys same trap line uh, and different results with the same lure. Now, some of that can be explained, and some of it is how we're making our sets uh, and going down to the really, really fine detail of how an animal, how lore makes an animal react and how that results in what type of sets we make. Uh, some of it is potentially explained if we actually dug a little deeper. And Dobbins dug really, really deep. So he talks about testing lore, and he has, he does this uh, he starts testing a lure. He'll he'll get a batch of lure of a really large quantity of lure, so he can he can test it on a number of different sets. And he does this preseason. He starts out, and he does a, what he calls a preliminary evaluation of the lure. To do this, Dobbins would go out to a place on his trap line that he's familiar with. Now, here's a very important aspect of this whole testing thing and it's important in trapping as well you really need to be able to identify proper habitat identify animal sign identify travel ways and places to make your sets if you don't have all that figured out then you're not going to be able to test lures effectively and Dobbins was probably one of the best if not the best in in trapping at doing those things, at actually knowing exactly where those animals would be on a particular piece of ground, going and finding their sign, and uh, determining what their travel ways, uh, what travel ways they were using, and then making appropriate sets. And it, it doesn't seem like like that is could be of ultimate importance, but it is because he's testing things like what, how far of a distance will the animal travel out of their normal travel way to get to this set with this lure. And you don't know that unless you know exactly where the travel way is. So th this is this gets into quite a quite a bit of fine detail. So the preliminary testing involves going out to a farm or wherever on your trap line, identifying a bunch of areas and making mock sets. Basically he'll, he would make a dirt hole set or a flat set he would put the lure on a lure holder, which is very important, either a cotton ball, a piece of sheep wool, 
a, uh, a dried out corn cob, something that's dry and porous and, and will hold the lure effectively. He'll make the set, he'll put the lure, depending on how the set is made, he'll put the lure in a certain location on that lure holder at the set. Sometimes that's down a dirt hole, sometimes it's under a rock, sometimes it is uh, right out in the middle of, of uh, something on a stick or on a, um, he'll make these wire hooks and push them into the ground to hold the, the lure holders and pin them down. And then he will uh, spread dirt, a thin layer of finely sifted dirt over the pattern area and walk away. And that sifted thin layer of dirt is there in order to identify tracks. So if you pat the dirt down uh, first and then you sift a thin layer of dirt over top of that packed down dirt, it makes a perfect ground uh, to identify tracks. In addition to that, what he was doing is he'd find these big major travelways like cattle trails or uh, farm uh, two tracks on a, a farm road, and he would sift fresh dirt along those. And so he could see what direction the animal was going to get to the set, uh, how far off of that they would go. Sometimes you could tell the different species of animals. Uh, you could even tell, he was so good at identifying sign, he could tell by the droppings, gray fox versus red fox. He could tell whether uh, when a, schoon, a coon and a skunk went to a set and a fox, he could tell which one got there first based on which tracks were in the other's tracks and so on. So we go out there, this preliminary testing, make all these mock sets, no traps in them or anything, and go back. Uh, I Usually it would be like for two days, uh, maybe maybe a little longer depending on the situation. And he would determine how animals reacted to the lure. And he'd have a variety of different situations uh, to, to evaluate to determine how they reacted. Uh, that means some places would be like uh, near the woods, some would be out in the open and crop fields, some would be right on a travelway, some would be 15 feet off, some might be 30 yards off of a travelway. Some would be flat sets, some dirt holes, some large attractors, uh, some would be in near water where coons were, coon sign was found, some near where cattle were traveling, so he could determine all these different things on a broad level and that's important and and most of the time that's like how we we have our observation to say oh this this lure resulted in this on my trap line well you made that broad observation and that's good that's how we learn but Dobbins was using these broad observations in an unbiased way because he was doing all these different type making these different situations um, if you go out and you make a hundred dirt holes and then you say, oh, this lure worked good on my trap line. Well, that might just be because it works good at dirt holes. What about flat sets? Did you use urine? Did you use bait? Were you near the water? Were you... So, you know, see what I'm getting at is a whole variety of situations put together allows you to make some general observations. The other important thing, and this is this book is somewhat hard to read because he is so detailed and man, it is some slow reading when you go through the, the preliminary testing because he describes in detail the area, all the features, the travelways, the sign. He writes all of this down 
and the type of set he made and every he does that for every single set and he'll make I don't know a dozen to 15 sets for preliminary testing and you're talking you know like a paragraph of writing for each set and, and he kept repeating this is recorded this is recorded this is recorded so he's writing all this down in notebooks but that's very important because when you go back there are details that you may not have even thought about or considered important but sometimes those details can come together and help you make some very important conclusions about that lure so he goes back and he reads the results basically okay this set was in this situation here's the description of it and this is how the animal reacted sometimes that is the animal came in lots of tracks in the pattern um, it dug out the hole uh, it deposited droppings on the edge of the uh, exposed dirt and uh, or it could be the animal just passed by and there was no activity could be a raccoon investigated this if a raccoon investigates three or four in a row well maybe this lure is more attractive to raccoon than it is to fox for instance and all those different observations the other thing is these sets will be made like he'll have some a short distance from a trail some a far long ways away from a trail and he will determine okay this set this type of lure apparently attracted animals from a distance of 15 feet but then he had sets out 30 feet off the trail and it did not attract those animals uh, also things like wind direction uh, amount of lure everything has to be standardized here to make sure that you don't have any variables getting in the way of what's actually helping you understand what's actually going on preliminary testing you basically look at the results go through write everything down and analyze it and say okay these are the conclusions that I come up with and in the example he had in the book it was like okay this this lure appears to attract animals for at least a couple of days this lure seems to elicit a response where animals leave droppings at the set uh, this lure doesn't attract cattle or raccoon very from a very long ways away and a couple other observations he takes that preliminary results and uses those results to the next into the next phase which you know a lot of people do this preliminary type stuff but no almost nobody goes into the second phase which he called limit testing in limit testing he is testing the limits of the lure this is some really interesting stuff so he'll do and and an important thing to know is that in the limit testing he will go into a completely different area from where he did preliminary testing and and within this limit testing there's going to be like two three different areas even sometimes four different areas separated far enough from each other by at least several miles so you're not encountering the same animals and that's very important because you don't want to bias your results based on what you did earlier at that same area because those are the same animals remember you're not catching those animals in traps so they're available to go back to sets again and again and they can learn set locations they can learn uh, get accustomed to a lure and that can change how they act so go into a completely different area do this limit testing and this was something that really fascinated me when he did the limit testing he would take 
these uh, cotton balls or lure holders and he would apply a sit the same amount of lure to each lure holder and he would do this for like a week straight every day he'd do like say 10 lure holders on day one and mark write them down put them in a jar write them down he'd do 10 more on day two label them write them down separately put them in a jar and day three day four day five day six all the way through they would be outside held outside in sort of a caged area but completely exposed to the weather and what he was doing was he was weathering lure out in the elements for a specified amount of time and then he'd take that and go out and determine how effective that lure was based on the amount of time it had spent out in the weather this is just seems it's common sense but it's also genius at the same time so he'd have he go out to do his limit testing and not only is he able to test how far off the trail this animal will be attracted to this lure he'd also say he'd use in one set he would use the lure that's been aged for three days so it's three day old lure and that is simulating as if you had that lure at that set for three days in a row and then a fox came in to investigate the set or came or walked by how effective after three days is that lure at a, at drawing that fox off its trail versus one day and the reason you do this is because on the same night under the same circumstances you can test one day old two day old three day old four day old five day old six day old seven day old lure and when you go back and look at the results, you can say, at this distance from the trail, the three-day-old lure attracted foxes, but the four-day-old lure did not. What that means is this particular lure, and, and like another thing Dobbin says is every time you come up with a conclusion, uh, it's often good to go back and retest that just to verify and make sure that uh, your results are, are consistent. But you can use that information to determine this lure is effective for approximately three days under these conditions. So if I'm using this on the trap line, I got to relure this set with this lure every three days. That is some really valuable information. Whether you are the most experienced trapper out in the land or you're just a beginner, to, to just use that basic test result to determine how often you need to relure your set is incredibly valuable. You'll also know how far away um, the other another thing he tests how far away the animals are attracted to a set by going off the trail certain distances. Uh, another point is he would make these limit sets in areas that where they were not highly visible so you knew the scent was what was attracting the animal. Uh, another thing he did was added extra lure to a certain subset of these say four day old um, uh, age lures and on some of them the there would be extra lure and you use those results to determine uh, if you added more lure initially would it have attracting power for a longer period of time and sometimes that's the case sometimes it's not but I hope this just kind of gets your mind thinking about testing lures and how how they can be evaluated. It's something that is is fascinating to me 
it requires so much work that unless you really are getting into this, you probably aren't going to do the entire entirety of this testing um, regime or regimen. But I would highly recommend if you want to learn more and it's the off season, you got some time in your hands, you want to do some testing, try it out. Uh, um, try a few of these things and and just make sure that you're standardizing everything. Pick up a copy of this book, Charles Dobbins' Evaluation of Lures, Baits, and Urines. Most of the trap and supply companies have it. I know Minnesota Trapline has it. Uh, I bought my copy from F&T, and uh, it's a real popular book. You can get them from Paul Dobbins at, at Trapper Man. Um, I say it's real popular. Dobbins is real popular. I don't think a lot of people have actually read this book in detail. It's not easy to read. You have to have a lot of focus and concentration uh, and patience because it goes into such detail and moves so slowly. But if you are really serious about figuring this stuff out, this is the way to do it. And on another note, if you're really interested in uh, your lure maker, um, it would be interesting to see how some of our lure makers uh, evaluate their lures. I know Dobbins mentioned that he knew more about lures than a lot of the lure makers knew about those specific lures. In other words, he had tested them far more extensively than the lure maker did, which is not an uncommon thing because the lure maker is focused on making a, a lure with quality ingredients, coming up with a formulation, uh, doing some tests on it, making sure it works, and then getting it out there to a bunch of people. And the results from the lure sales oftentimes dictates um, how you know whether they keep producing that particular lure and it'll validate you know how effective that lure is how good of a lure it is um, but really I don't I don't know how many people have gone through this type of detailed testing to determine how effective their lures were but it would be pretty cool to find out maybe you ask ask a couple of lure makers about that and I'd, I'd be interested to hear um, to hear what some of them would have to say whether they whether they don't think it's really worth it uh, to go through this whole process, or maybe some of them um, are are going through the entire thing and, and testing them really extensively. It'd be interesting. But anyway, uh, I hope that was useful. Uh, I know it was for me, and I learned a lot of information from this book. And I'm I'm excited to to try some of this uh, as you know, in the future moving forward on lures. The other thing Dobbins mentioned is there's no magic lure and the it's very important not to come up with, oh, this lure tested out the best and so this is the lure that I'm gonna use on my trap line. You need multiple lures. You need different lures. Oftentimes it's good to get different several different lures from several different lure makers and have sort of a well-rounded approach to your uh, lure strategy on your trap line. Because animals animals are individuals. Uh, they can get wore out. They can get tired of a specific scent. They can get used to it. It no longer has that attraction or that uh, novel. The novelty wears off over time. Um, conditions can change. So it's always good to have multiple lures to use. Uh, but uh, going through this, uh, a little bit of this testing, um, not only does it teach you a lot about how lures work, the other thing Dobbins mentioned is it gives you a lot of confidence. 
and it helps you to make better sets based on how you know this lure is going to work. Um, so with that, evaluation of lures, baits, and urines by Charles Dobbins. And I appreciate you tuning in and listening to that. Would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Do you evaluate lures? Do you know people who do? Do you think it's a waste of time? Do you think it's a good idea? Let me know. And until next time, thanks for tuning in. Keep on thinking, trapping, talking, trapping, and reading some of those trapping books. Uh, We'll continue to cover some of those in the future. And we will catch you on the next episode. Have Have a great one.